welcome to episode four, season two of This Spiritual Fix. Today we're going to be talking about the hindrances that prevent us from meditating as well as from enlightenment. Stay tuned. This Spiritual Fix, Two Mystical Mamas Hacking the Self-Help Game, with Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Anna. Thank you for joining us, even though I know you didn't have a lot of sleep last night. <laughs> no. Uh, you got to experience the new puppy last year, and I got to experience it this week. It's it's amazing how we go through these periods of change, and then it seems like everything's changing all at the same time. Because, uh, yeah, I was also testing some medication for ADHD this week, in addition to getting a puppy, which... <laughs> Double whammy. It's, it's it's just not really the best idea in terms of everything because it's like hard to attribute any kind of behavior to any specific cause. So yeah, it's Sleep good. Related. It's good. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, I want to address the uh, a small little thing before we start our episode, which is just that we have decided to put ads on our show. Mm -hmm. The reason being is we are now outsourcing editing of the podcast and we're also upgrading the equipment we're using. So we we started to use sponsors and what did, did you wanted to say something about that? Well, the thing is, is that with the podcasting platform that we use, um, as wonderful as it is, we don't get to choose what the ads are. So, you know, uh, this is, this is what is sustainable for us. So we do it out of service, but we also do it out of service that, um, and can design it to be sustainable. Right. I think the point is if you love something and are passionate about it, y'all have, you, ha you have to have a little bit of the left brain come in and say, how can this be sustainable? Because passion rises and falls. So what are we talking about today, Anna? Okay, so today is part two of our Truth Never Dies series, where we're going to be talking about enlightenment and the 10 hindrances of enlightenment. With enlightenment, can you describe, can you define enlightenment, Christina? Because it's something I don't know because I'm not there. I'm <laughs> just kidding. No, oh, I, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll just step in right here oh, because yeah. you know, I'm enlightened. enlightened. No, just kidding. Um, so what is enlightenment? Well, according to Buddhism, there are four stages of liberation or basically four planes of four stages of getting to liberation. So you have the stream enterer, the once returner, the non-returner, and the arhant. So we have talked in the previous episode that there are three types of Buddha, someone basically three types of arhans, three types of people who will have been reached enlightenment. You have the kind of Buddha who figured it out and figured out a system to get there and can lead others. That's like Buddha Supreme. And then you have a regular Buddha, which is someone who got enlightened, but they can't really show other people how to get enlightened, but they can tell you what it's like. And that would be an example is Eckhart Tolle, right? Like he got enlightened. He doesn't really know exactly how it happened, but it happened and he can talk about it. And then you have someone called an arhant, which is someone who 
gets enlightened because they have been facilitated through either the teaching or direct guidance of an, of a Buddha. So those are the three types of Buddha. Now, to get to Buddhas, to get to that enlightenment state that we're talking about with those three Buddhas, you have four levels. The first level is the stream enterer. The second level is the once returner. The third level is the non-returner. And the fourth one being Arhant. Now, personally, I think I have met, I don't believe I've ever met a full-blown Arhant. Maybe I have and don't know. But I definitely feel I have met one of the first three levels of people when I was living in India. Um as well as I believe, and I don't think he would mind me saying it, I believe Satyan Raja, who lives in Canada, is one of the first three. But anyways, um, after undergrad, but before grad school, I traveled around the world and I ended up spending almost three years in India on a quest. I wouldn't say on a quest to become enlightened, but to become closer to enlightenment. I, I think I was pretty aware from the beginning. It was is not might not happen in this life. It's a it's a large feat, but I really wanted to become more awake and happier. So I went to India looking for teachers and meditation and guidance and I tried pretty much everything with the exception of drugs to, you know, find that. When I was living in India, I did primal therapy at one point, which was like a hundred days of primal therapy. And my teacher was Pernananda, who was originally American with an American name. And he was a disciple of Osho, who is a controversial guy on Netflix. If you watch it, whether or not Osho was enlightened is another story. The point, I think Osho's techniques were great. So um, it's kind of one of those things where like Woody Allen might be a horrible person, but I love his movies. Eh, like I don't know about Osho, but I can say I love his techniques. And as controversial as that may be, that's just my, the case for me. Yeah, it's the art and the artist. Yeah. Right. So anyways... Um, Pernananda was my primal therapy teacher. And first of all, I was totally broke at the time and he let me do it for free, which was beautiful. And I believe he was enlightened because, all right, I don't know if he was, he was in one of these early stages because when you were in his presence, you felt unconditionally loved in a way that I can't even put it into words. It's like that feeling you got as a baby when your mother snuggled you up, like just being in his presence, you felt unconditionally loved. And when he looked you in the eyes, it felt like he could look right through you into your soul. It was so amazing. And he could be brutally honest and and say cruel things, but the love behind his words and the love in his eyes was so deep and so pure that just being in his presence I, I felt like you could go you could go so deep and feel so supported and loved. And I have not experienced that with many humans and and or any other human really. Or no, maybe well, no, I don't think I've experienced that with other humans. No. That that, yeah. that that level of um of unconditional love. And he'd done a lot of work. I mean, he had lived in India maybe 30, 40 years of his life. He was an older man. And um he was just amazing. And the way that he interacted with his other people and he was just such an example of, of, of unconditional love and awareness. So to me, I think he was in those, in those higher states. Um, a second, the second person that I would say that I believe was enlightened, 
Um, actually, I have three. I have more than two stories. I have a lot. So a second one would be the Hugging Saint Amaji. Oh, uh, yeah. Who, we went and saw her together with our yeah. kids. <laughs> so I saw her first. Before that, I saw her in India, and I went to hug her. There's a saint in India, and she's supposed to incarnate the divine feminine, divine mother. And people stand in lines to hug her. Thousands and thousands of people hug her in one night. So she has back pains. I mean, she just sits up there and hugs people. And when she hugs you, before you get to, in the line, she there's a volunteer who asks you what's your native language. And she has memorized saying, come home to mama in like every language on the planet. So they figure out what is your language or dialect. They quickly whisper it in her ear. So when you come to hug her, she'll tell you in your mother tongue, come home to mama as she hugs you. When she did that, I, I was like, let's go, let's go see her. I went with a friend. When I went up there to hug her, I fainted. I had something called a Kriya, which is where you have a full, like a, your whole body responds physically and viscerally to someone, to the presence of Shakti, which is energy. So when she hugged me, I actually collapsed in her arm. Like think Michael Jackson concert, you know, those people <laughs> freaking out. I mean, I wasn't screaming, but I just hugged her out of curiosity. I was curious. I wasn't a, devo- a, a devotee of hers, but I hugged her and I collapsed because the the sensation of that much pure energy overwhelmed my whole system that all I felt as if I I burst inside that I had just turned into thousands and thousands of or millions of atoms. So for a split second I felt like I didn't exist. And when and then I you know immediately I opened my eyes and then the volunteer said you felt her you get to sit next to her now. So what happens is anyone in those th- the thousands and thousands of people in the crowd who hug her and actually had what was called this I don't know what they called it I, I was a total novice at this point of spirituality I had no idea what it was. They're like you can go up there and sit with her. So I went up on the stage and there was about a fifty to a hundred more people up there that had similarly collapsed and or were great probably great donors or maybe volunteers. I don't know who they were, but I I got up to sit up there for about two hours and sit next to her in her presence. And when I closed my eyes to meditate, because I'm like, what else am I going to do up here but meditate? Because everyone's meditating. It was like my brain was crystal clear. Like normally when you close your eyes and meditate, you have a lot of thoughts and jumble and, and, um, it's just, you know, you have a lot of thoughts and it's very hard to concentrate. And you spend like half the time meditating, trying to focus and concentrate being in the presence of this woman. When I closed my eyes, it was like, there was nothing in my brain. It was just crystal clear and quiet. And I open my eyes and you see all this chaos. You see this circus tent, you see thousands of people. I mean, this is India. It's crowded and, 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 and personal space is different there. You're just people jumble, jumble, jumble. You look outside you and you hear so much noise and so much chaos and so many people. But when I close my eyes, and meditated, it was just, it was crystal clear and quiet and calm. And I was like, I don't know who this woman is, but I am in the presence of someone who has gone, who is somewhere that most humans do not get. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's the experience. I feel like that is Shakti. I, I, my yoga teacher, um, from when I did yoga teacher training, um, she's Acharya Swami Devi and I've, I've mentioned her a couple of times, but she channels a ton of Shakti, um, through practices that we've talked about before, which is, um, or we will talk about today, which is uh, celibacy, um, and a cup, uh, and basically yoga practices and devote devotion to her, her life, um, as a yogi and it's not quite the same, but it is very similar in the sense that 
it, she heightens any experience, any spiritual capabilities that you have or clarity that you have about an issue. Like when I get in her presence, I can just channel um, because that's just, that's like my, one of my small connections to the, what are called the cities, which are the kind of supernatural powers that yogis um, d- can develop uh, over time. And, um, and, and and I should caveat that with like, I'm not an amazing yogi, but I just happen to have one of the cities, <laughs> a right. couple of things that I can do. Right. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I've got one more story. One more story. And so just to preface that, maybe the woman you are talking about and maybe Pernananda, the primal wound therapist, was maybe they were stream enterers or once returners and maybe the Amaji and the man I'm about to speak about were non-returners. Like maybe, or maybe they were Arhants. Like I don't know how to classify them, but maybe they were just at different levels in the enlightenment stages. Okay. So the last story I will tell today is my husband, before we got married, took me back to India because he was just always amazed that I had spent so much time there and he himself wanted to go. So we did a spiritual adventure tour with this Canadian teacher named Satyan Raja. And we went on like a 20 or 30 day adventure where we retraced the steps of the Buddha through India, Northern India. And it was a totally different experience than mine because we stayed in beautiful hotels and ate amazing food. And when I was there, I was, I was, I was a vagabonding hippie, you know, whatever, different, different experience. But at one point we went to Varanasi and Varanasi is considered one of the holiest cities in all of India because it's where the Ganges river is. And the belief is that you can get a shortcut to Nirvana, meaning Nirvana is the state of enlightenment. And if you die, if you die in this city, you get instant access to Nirvana if your if your body is burned and then deposited into the Ganges River. So because of it, it has the highest number of hospices in the world in this city because everyone wants to die in that city. And when you go to India, they don't put bodies in coffins; they carry them through the street on these pot like these um, caravans with marigold. And, and if people are poor, then they're they're just carried through the streets. So you see a lot of, every day. You'll see dead bodies being paraded mm-hmm. through the street. And then they burn them on the river, Ganges, with some sort of wood. And I don't know what this wood does, but you do not smell burning flesh. So mm-hmm. at any given time, if you're walking along the river in, in Varanasi, you'll see you know, two to a couple dozen funeral pyres, meaning human bodies being burnt. And then they toss the remains in the river. If the person's not doesn't have enough money, they toss them in the river without burning them, like if they can't afford the wood. Yep. So the river... You don't want to go in that river necessarily because it is full of dead bodies and bones and um, and all that jazz. Now, although it is one of the most polluted rivers in the world um, and like the fecal material is insane and there's dead bodies everywhere, dolphins still swim inland from the ocean. There, it's like this anomaly. Like, why would dolphins swim in polluted rivers? They don't normally do that. Dolphins will come swim up through the river because it's just considered so pure. Um, it's like one of those things, a placebo maybe. Like, if you believe, it becomes amazing. Or maybe it is amazing. I knew a person, for example, who wanted to go into this temple there. And they're like, you have to bathe in the Ganges before you're allowed in this temple. It's a very holy temple. And they're like, you want me to go in there? Like, all those dead bodies? And it's it's just, you know... It's a filthy river. But this person was like, I'm in India. Everyone else is swimming in this river. They want me to go in the river before I go into the temple. You're only in India once. Let me do it. So this friend of mine decides to go into the river. 
And keep in mind when you are in India, your feet, your, the soles of your feet get black because yeah. of, I don't know if it's the pollution or the dirt and you're going to wear skin, sandals. Your like everything. Your yeah. Skin, everything, your feet, are, the heels of your feet are always black in India because you're, no one's wearing sneakers there. It's so hot and humid. Everyone's wearing sandals and then it's, it's can be dirty. So anyways, everyone's feet is dirty and like you can scrub in the shower for hours and it does not come off. Okay. And not for hours, but you can scrub in the shower for a long time oh, yeah. and, it, and it's yeah. very hard to get off and it yep. sometimes doesn't. So anyways, this friend of mine was like, fine, I'm going to go get in the Ganges because I want to go into this temple and I just won't put my head under. I won't, I won't drink the water. So they get into the water and they come out. And when they come out, they said I, they couldn't believe it. They were completely clean that even the soles of their feet were pure, were like completely clean. They're like something holy. There's something holy about that river. Anyways. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have the opposite oh, story. I have the opposite story about that one too. Um, I remember when I was in Varanasi one night, we ran into someone who we had done a Vipassana retreat with in Nepal and um, didn't even know that they were in Varanasi with us. And they were really upset. They were crying on the banks of the Ganges. And it was because they had just come from a hospital where a Western tourist had gone into the Ganges, had a cut on his body, it had gotten infected and he had turned yellow and died in three days, which is the other version of like is the other experience of it. Right. And and maybe it's the belief in it and maybe it's the thing, but like, you know, there are monks who, who will pray over rivers and lakes and clean them, you know, and this lake and this river and the, the, you know, the Ganges, especially below Varanasi has, you know, it has a lot of uh, people, paying attention to it. It has a lot of uh, ascetics. It has a lot of all these, you know, holy men and women who are concentrating on that and, you know, kind of keeping it holy in addition to the holiness that's accumulated over millennia. Yeah. I mean, I put my feet in the, in the Ganges in Rishikesh, which is much further upstream. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, this feels clean because it had just come out of the mountains. So it was like, oh, it's a little bit better. So we're on the tour and we're doing the tourism thing. And there are tons of babas. In Varanasi, there are tons and tons of these babas, like these saints, these men who who yeah. claim to be saints, claim to be enlightened, claim to be miracle provider performers, claim to be psychics, whatever. And a lot of them are fake because you know they're walking around with just a loincloth on, and they call them the tourist babas because they're really just trying to make money off of people, and then, and they might not necessarily be enlightened, or maybe they just think they are. But or maybe they they have some cities which are some special psychic gifts and they think they're enlightened but they're not. Well, anyways, when you walk through the streets of Varanasi, you're gonna you're gonna see on a daily basis like 200 babas. There's probably thousands and thousands in the city. But I believe with those kind of numbers, the odds are probably one is actually enlightened. So we actually ran into one of them, which is to say. We're on the river of the, the the Ganges, and I started to get that same feeling I got when I saw Amaji, which was this this complete quiet in my heart and a feeling of unconditional love. And that when I closed my eyes, I felt quiet. And I said, Eric, someone here is emanating a very special presence. Do you feel it? And he stops what he's doing. He looks around and he's like, oh my God, I feel it. It's coming from him. And I'm like, you're right. It's coming from him. And then there was a man sitting on the steps with long dreadlocks. He's only in a loincloth and he's just sitting there meditating on the banks of the Ganges. But this energy was 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 like flowing out of him. It was so strong that we look around and we're like, why isn't anyone else feeling this? Like, 
like I was surprised people were not lining up in the thousands to, to be near this man. It was so palpable. But for whatever reason, only Eric and I were like noticing it. And I said, and Eric, my husband went up to the man and just bowed at his feet, basically just to be reverent and be like, you know what? You know, thank you for meditating in this world. Thank you for existing. So my, my husband just went up to him, bowed at this man's feet. And when he did it, the man opened his eyes and he looked at my husband and he took his fist. And he, as my husband is like bending down in like child's pose, he, he punches my husband in the sacrum and he travels up his back, pu- kind of like punching him lightly in every chakra point. And then he touches his crown chakra and let's go. And then Eric looks at me, he's like, you got to do it. So I, I like walk <laughs> over and I also bow at this man's feet and get into Lotus or get into child's pose. And he, 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 he pats, he punches my back. He travels up my spine and puts his hand on my head. When he put my hand, his hand on my head, I felt like I exploded inside. It was that same thing I got when I hugged Amaji and I felt for a minute that I didn't exist, that I was just thousands and millions of atoms vibrating, that I was just pure energy. And it felt amazing. And it felt, I just felt, I just, all I felt was just not, I was nothing. I was dissolved and I felt so much love. And we, you know, we thanked him and we walked away and we felt we were both were like, we both were like, that was amazing. And for hours and hours and hours that day, we were in total bliss, total bliss. And we were like, anytime we thought of him, we were carried right back to that feeling. Now time has passed. And I, I think I'd have to like really concentrate on thinking about that yeah. man to like get that feeling back. Maybe I could, but the point is we felt bliss for hours after seeing him. And it was one, it was one of the most, it was, I had already experienced it. It was, it's still up there as one of the most powerful experiences I've had. And it was definitely my husband's. So awesome. again, was that man in our haunt? I think he must have been. I, I don't know, but he was. He was. He was definitely on somewhere in this level. These, these levels of enlightenment. I never. I've never felt like what you. Or maybe I have. I just can't remember it. Of well, like the washing over. But you're so amazing at at channeling energy. You'll just like go into a kriya at any point. Well. <laughs> I think it has a lot to do with expectations, just to be honest, because before those experiences with Amaji and um, the, the, the guy, the saint on the river, I visited in India so many people who claimed to be enlightened. I probably went to five different teachers claiming that people claim to be enlightened, that in their presence, they felt this and that and this and that. And I would go with all these expectations and I didn't feel anything. And I'd be looking for ways that they were frauds. And I never felt anything in those people's presence. And it wasn't until, I guess something happened. I don't know what, but at some point I I was like giving up expectations. I was like, I don't know what enlightenment is. Let me let, let me let go what I think enlightened person looks like or acts like. And I think that's when it started happening. But I definitely went to so many people and my friends would be like, like, we're like, so-and-so's in town. Let's go visit her. And my friends would be like, it was amazing. And I was like, I do not think she's enlightened. Did you see her do X, Y, and Z? <laughs> I, was, I was like so in my head that I bypassed feeling what they felt. Yeah. And I let it go. I let it go. But anyways, all right, guys. And now a word from our sponsors as we take a quick break. Hi, Christina, co-host of This Spiritual Fix. Has listening to our podcast stirred up something for you with the primal wounds? The good news is, is you have access, and that is the first step to transforming these wounds. We created support packages to help you through this process, and they're available on our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com. 
These packages were designed by Anna and I, combining techniques and hacks from our own experience working through our own wounds. Each packet contains a workbook and two meditations, one about forgiving those who have wounded you, including yourself, and one about reprogramming old beliefs. You can buy an individual support package or for those next level processors, all five packets, abandonment, injustice, rejection, betrayal, and humiliation. Available on our website and our shop. All right, we're back. And it has occurred to me that we just spent so long giving you stories. We have not even gotten to the meat of what we wanted to discuss today. Sorry about that. I hope you came for the stories. (laughs) Okay. So what we're talking about today are the four levels of enlightenment. And when we talk about the four levels of enlightenment, we're talking about the overcoming of the 10 hindrances. Okay. So there are 10 hindrances, meaning, okay. So the idea is we are all enlightened anyways, like we are all enlightened, but we Mm -hmm. have crap on us. So the way that, that Osho said it was, you don't need to learn anything new. You need to unlearn the untrue. So I love that. That's like a great way of saying it. Like you don't need to learn to be enlightened. You don't need to get to be enlightened. You need to unlearn all the crap holding you back from your true self, which is an enlightened, fully realized enlightened being. Okay. So in that sense, the way that we define the four planes of liberation, or we're going to talk now about the 10 hindrances. And then at the end, I'm going to tie it back into how that corresponds to the liberation stages. So there are 10 hindrances, meaning there are 10 things keeping us from being our true, fully realized self. I'm going to read them real quick, and then we're going to talk about them, okay? So number one is permanent personality. Number two is doubt. Number three is attachments to rites and rituals. Number four is attachment to sense desires. Number five is ill will. Number six is craving for existence in form. Number seven is craving for existence in formless. Chris's personal favorite. (laughs) Number eight is conceit. Number nine is restlessness. And number 10 is ignorance. So these are basically the 10 things that are keeping us fucked up. Okay. Just kidding. (laughs) But that's it. That's it. These are the 10 things that if we were to get rid of all of them, we will be fully realized. And if we get rid of some of them, we become stream enterers. If we get rid of a few more, we become once returners, then we become non-returners. And if we get rid of all 10, we are our haunts. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about these hindrances and let's all keep in mind, like maybe we're maybe not, we'll get enlightened in this lifetime, but regardless, it'd be great if we can all strive to let go of these hindrances, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So number one is permanent personality, which is basically ego. Like permanent personality is like, hi everybody, I'm a Leo and I'm a second born and I'm from this religion in that country. And this is what I like. And this is what I don't like. So it's like the character you have created in this world to interact in this world, which we all kind of need characters, uh, in, to kind of survive in reality and society. But it's it's attachment to this pers- permanent personality. It's thinking that is who you really are. This construct you've created is not really who you are. You're really just a soul in a body or a body in a soul. But, you know, this character you've created with all your likes and dislikes and attachments to identity, that is one of the biggest hindrances. Number yeah. one, permanent yeah. personality. So interestingly, okay. I used to have a person who uh, would say, don't don't mind my personality. It's just the cup 
that I fill up with my light or something like that. But this was a person who that gave me chills. I love that. Yeah. But like, this was also a person who would look at someone and only see the light and not see the cup and then get in trouble because of it. I say get in trouble, but like kind of get in heart trouble in the sense of like, you can fall in love with someone's higher self, but if their, if their cup is still like dirty and like opaque and like, it's real hard to see their light, like everybody else can't see their light and they're not (laughs) acting in their light then. And they're only acting out of their small self or their personality, their permanent personality. Like, it can be a little tough and heartbreaking, right? Because you're like, I see how beautiful you are. Well, that's you're just an asshole. Per- <laughs> that's how I felt Pernananda saw me. Like I was deep, I was thick in those primal wounds therapy. Uh, I was sobbing, snot coming out of my face. And he only saw what was in the cup, you know? Yeah. It was beautiful. I love this quote. See the light in others and treat them as if that's all you see. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and just to add to that, my husband's teacher uses the word character a lot. And so my husband will be like, uh, like if he does something, he's like, oh, that's just my character. <laughs> Meaning like, that's not really him. It's just the persona he's created. And he's aware that that's not really him. So anyway, yeah. that's number one. Number two is my personal favorite. And that one is doubt. So ironically, having experienced all that I've experienced, and I have even more stories on top of the ones I've told today, that would make you would make make it think that I have no doubt about the possibility of enlightenment or that enlightened people exist. Doubt definitely. It's like, I think, out of sight, out of mind. It's like, if I'm not experiencing it on the daily, I just don't believe it anymore kind of thing and or something. But doubt is one. And I think yeah. we all experience doubt. Like oh, you all might oh hear my, my stories and be doubting me right now. There's your hindrance. Yeah. Also, it's the doubt of like, I feel like it's the doubt in your own ability to do it or the doubt that you're actually making progress. We've talked a lot about the boulders and how sometimes you have the big boulders and sometimes you have the little pebbles. And when you kind of are going down the path and it feels like you've regressed, then that's a huge opening for doubt to come in and say, hey, you're not actually doing anything. You're just thinking you're doing something. And then, you know, there's skepticism is so, so prevalent um, and very, very strong in our culture. And it's easier, even though there's plenty of scientific evidence to actually prove that a lot of this stuff is true. And it's, there's a lot of scientific backing for it. It has not um, become accepted by the mainstream and, so doubt is not just coming from yourself and your own self-doubt. It's coming from a lot of external factors as well. And it's best to just honestly take a take a dose of it and be like, okay, I'm hearing all this stuff and all these things, but I have experienced something and I can maybe try and write that down when I do experience so that I can go back and actually remember and not have so much doubt. Mm-hmm. Number three is attachments to rites and rituals. I feel like I don't do that one. I don't have any rites or rituals. I've I've pretty much given up my affiliation with organized religion. So I don't attach think- to rites and rituals. I don't do that one. I'm enlightened, guys. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think this one's really interesting because when you go to Vipassana, for any of you listeners who have gone to, to Vipassana, um, he talks about you can't have a mantra, you can't have all these different things and and if you've listened to any of our episodes in the past, you know I've talked about um, what are things that can help you to get to a better state of meditation as opposed to just kind of having the school of hard knocks in which you're just watching your breath, um, candle gazing, mantras, pranayama, 
being next to an enlightened person, like all of those things are things that can help. The trick is, is that if you become attached to the ritual and you can only get to your meditative state through that ritual, it's a really good thing, but it's also a really good thing to not become attached to it too much because then the ritual supersedes the actual experience of it. Right. So, and that's, that's really what we're talking about here is that, you know, if you're going to circle, um, if you're going to circumambulate a temple 10 times and you're just going to be thinking about your laundry list of things to do, that's a lesson in and of itself, but that is not the ritual. That's not what the ritual is meant to evoke in you. And so, you know, not, it's, it's not a checklist. It's not a (laughs) rituals are not a laundry list. It's not like, Hey, if I do, if I do this many, um, prayer bead, like when you have the prayer bead things and you're kind of going through them and doing your, your mantra or doing your things. Oh, if I do this, like, yeah, it's good homework, but make sure to recognize that your attachment to that ritual in order to get somewhere or be able to do something, um, could be a hindrance. Right. Next one, number four, I'm guilty of this one, attachment to sense desires. So that would be the sensual pleasure of sex, the sensual pleasure of food, massage maybe. I don't know. I don't know if massage would go in there. But yeah, basically attachment to sense desires, which I am guilty of. I used yeah. to, at the in the afternoons of Vipassana, when you're an old student, you cannot eat any food. I went and so you ate at 630 in the morning and then you ate at like 11 because you you took a precept, you took an agreement that said that you weren't going to eat afternoon. And I literally lived for breakfast. And then when it came to lunch, they're always like, don't fill up your plate. Don't get totally full. And I would hoard my food. Like I would literally just, I would, the whole plate would be so full because I was like attached to this idea that I wasn't going to get to eat dinner and therefore it was going to make my meditation harder. And I just had this whole very kind of like destructive self-thought around food. And I, and then when it got to the evening and I hadn't eaten for what, Oh, a whole six hours. Oh my God, heaven forbid. Then I would, and then I would have this experience of craving and thinking of food. Like that was what my, would fill up my meditations is thinking about food. And that was a perfect example of being attached to sense desires, right? Right. Number five. Number five is ill will. So ill will would be, you know, wanting revenge or wanting so-and-so to die or or just wishing ill on someone. So I have one person in my life right now who I really dislike, someone who did something to me that I thought was very bad. And then not only didn't apologize, but claimed I was, quote, caught up in the Me Too movement. And that royally pissed me off. Oh yeah. And royally pissed me off. And it's funny because I'm like, I have ill will towards this one person, but he is the one person probably keeping me from enlightenment. But that's a total displacement of blame for me to be like, if only he hadn't done that, if only he had apologized, I would be one step closer to enlightenment. No, I am in the way of my own enlightenment. My ill will for him is in the way of my own enlightenment. I really need to sit down and do some true forgiveness, ho'oponopono to this person. I need to go back, listen to episode 14 on forgiveness, forgive him. That's a side story for another day, but I'm sure almost everyone listening who is not enlightened has someone in their catalog of pain that you have some ill will towards. And that's holding us back from enlightenment guys. Yeah. And it's not, does it, does it apply the same if someone has ill will towards you or is that just more indicative of no. self growth or more indicative of your permanent personality causing uh, other people? Hello, Don Ruiz, Miguel, and don't take anything personally. Right. Like, who, who cares? <laughs> 
Everyone can hate you. Who fucking cares? That's their karma, not yours. All right. Yeah. Number six, craving for existence in form. So I probably have that. And then number seven is craving for existence in formalist. Chris has that one. So Chris is always saying, well, I'll let Chris talk about it. But Chris says, I don't want to be on this earth. She has this existential thing about like not wanting to be in a human body. That is craving for formalist. It's a hindrance. I, on the other hand, probably have a craving for existence in form, meaning I don't want to die. I want to stay here. And even if I do die, I want to come back because I love earth and I love my family and I love all the people I get to meet over here. So I have craving for existence in form and Chris. Yeah. My, my craving for existence and formless comes up as like very like obvious, like I don't really like human, which is actually a mantra I'm trying to change at the moment. Um, it is something that does come into my mind a lot, but for me, it comes up when I'm meditating and I know I've talked to a lot of people about this is this experience when you finally feel like you're on the brink of going into a deep state of meditation and you're so eager or maybe some people are scared of like kind of diving into the deep end of that experience that it just yanks you straight back out. And that's like, that's like the craving for the formless because it's like when you start to crave the experience, the deep experience of like kind of feeling outside of your body or things like that, the craving itself is enough to to slow your vibration down so that you can't actually get to that spot. Right. And so that, that can be it. It, it almost, it, it turns as a hindrance to deep meditation and really like being able to pull out the, the big boulders of your experience and be able to experience the formless is the craving for the formless. Oh, another thing to also keep in mind in this list is as we're, as we're increasing in the numbers, like number one to number 10, as these numbers go up, they are actually getting you higher into higher states of enlightenment, which is to say we probably all have the craving for existence and formless, but we are unaware of it. Like I know that I've only very seldom in deep meditation and Vipassana have been like, holy shit, I don't want to fucking be alive anymore. I don't want to be a human. This fucking sucks. It's one thing after another. It's one karma after another. It's craving aversion on top of craving aversion, attachment, attachment. I'm fucking done. So I think we all on an unconscious level. And when we get there deeply, we'll discover that we do have a a craving for existence and formless. Okay. Number eight, conceit. I don't have that one. Just kidding. Conceit would be conceit, you know, thinking you're amazing. Like, so conceit is, um, is a, a lot of the terms that people are using now is like spiritual narcissism. Basically when you become attached to your progress Sometimes you lose your progress. <laughs> I mean, you get like we said, you can't really lose your progress, but basically you're you're just heaping more things on top that you then have to get rid of. And so when you when you're talking about conceit, like I know some people who they claim to be continually serving other people, but they're serving other people to basically hold up like they're serving other people with compassion, but they're not, it's not actually coming from a pace of compassion. It's coming from a place of, of whole of the, of the, not the W H O L E, but the H O L E. Right. Or the, permanent, like, or the personality of the character. I right. have a character which bestows, you know. Right. And so, and so the conceit makes it so that you can no longer, not only do you stop seeing any faults in yourself, which is the narcissistic part of the spiritual narcissism part. Um, but you, you have a tendency and it it's exceptionally difficult because you want to be 
you want to keep going and you want to be proud of yourself and maybe you want to be a teacher and maybe you want to do all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I think one of the things that Anna and I always claim with this podcast is like, we definitely aren't enlightened and maybe people are learning stuff from this, but they're learning from a person from, from us who are trying to be as unconceited as possible about how much progress we haven't made, you know? Uh, and I think that that's kind of when you go into that teacher space, even if it's an accidental teacher space, um, conceit can really, really come and become a hindrance. That's true. Okay. Number nine, my biggest hindrance, one of my biggest hindrances is restlessness. Restlessness will be when you're like, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to do my one hour meditation. And you sit down and after five minutes, you're like, I should probably go do the laundry. Well, I should probably go wash the dishes. Oh, eh, this is boring. Let me do something else. So restlessness is basically restlessness, getting bored of meditating, getting bored of the past. Yeah. I love, I love it. Uh, SN Goenka in the Vipassana, when he talks about these um, hindrances, I love it. He has this story. It's like, I'm sitting, I'm sitting. Oh, suddenly I've gotten up and I've left the hall. Why have I left the hall? And it's like, it's so true. Like, I can't even tell you how many times I've been meditating and doing something. And then suddenly I'm just like, how did I get here? Like I was just meditating. What the hell just happened? I was just meditating and then I'm suddenly folding laundry. What? what? Okay. It's a folding laundry meditation. No. It's a folding laundry meditation. No. Yes. All right. Number 10, the king of them all is ignorance. So as, as we discussed in last week's episode, ignorance, craving, and aversion are the three causes of suffering. So ignorance is like, we could say ignorance is the umbrella with which all the other hindrances fall over. Because if we were totally in the enlightened, AKA illuminated, AKA not ignorant, we wouldn't have these hindrances because we could see through them and see the illusory pointless point of them, but we're all kind of trapped in them. That's our own ignorance. So number 10, which is the ultimate one is ignorance. Yep. Okay, so now going back to the four type planes of enlightenment that we spoke about first, I want to now talk about them a little bit more now that we understand them. So if you are going to be level one, which is a stream enterer, meaning you're getting really strong on the path, you're entering the stream of enlightenment, you have gotten rid of number one, two, and three, which is you got rid of your identity character, you got rid of doubt, and you got rid of ascetic rites and rituals. Now, if you have entered the stream enterer, now you may or may not believe in reincarnation. The idea is if you get to this state, you have only seven rebirths left, meaning you'll only come back to earth about seven more times. You're, you're on the last leg of your human existence. Okay. Number two, if you hit the stage of once returner, you have gotten rid of those first three things. Same as the stream enterer. Then why is it any different? Because you've done six of the lives and you only have one left. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. So I'm sorry, you're right. So if you're a once returner, you've basically gone through the six lives and you just got one more left. That's called, you got one more life left as a human, okay? So you basically spend six lives in that, yeah, in that identity-free, doubt-free, ascetic-free, which means you could easily meet a child or give birth to a baby that is a stream enterer or once returner. And and there's plenty of people you hear about that they're like, my kid is wise beyond their years. Maybe you got a stream enterer or once returner. Yeah. Yeah. I think That's Gary cool. Renard, yeah, Gary Renard, who we talk about, uh, who wrote The Disappearance of the Universe, he is an example of a once once returner, according to his ascended masters. Like he's like, I still gotta do this one and I got one more. 
but then I'm good. <laughs> That's like, great. Good to know. I got, I got about 2000 left. Okay. Non-returner. This is you're in your last life and you got rid of the first three, which was character, doubt, attachment to rites and rituals. You also got rid of sense desires and ill will, and you have one more life to go. Non-returner. Yep. And it's funny in the Vipassana center, if someone breaks a plate, everyone claps in the back, like the volunteers, they go, yay, it's a non-returner. Like instead of crying that the plate broke, we're like, it's a (laughs) non-returner. Yes, I remember that. (laughs) Uh, Buddha joke, Buddhist joke. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you get to be an arhat, you are not coming back. You are done, done, done. No rebirth for you. And you've gotten rid of all 10 of them. Material, all the first five we just talked about, plus... The desire for form, the desire for formless, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. And then you're not coming back. You 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 won the game. You won the game. That's it. Or you've, or you've escaped the game or any of those things, right? Or if you come back, you're voluntarily coming back, not in the form that you're in a prison, but in the form to teach, right? Right. So there are people, there. there is the belief. And, and Christians have this belief, too, that there are angels among us. And in the Buddhism, there is the idea that someone is fully enlightened. And they're like, hey, I'm going to come back to Earth and kind of help coach these people because they clearly need me or they need some. They're a little lost. And um, there's a beautiful story of one of those that came in India. And when he was a baby, as soon as he could crawl, he kept trying to leave his house. And it was driving his mother mad. Like she had to like tie him up because he would try to escape the house constantly. And as soon as he was old enough, I think like five or six, he left home and he became a teacher. Um, We have a huge temple for him in India. And I wish I could remember his name. I'll put it in the show notes. But since he was basically an infant, this guy was teaching people about enlightenment. And there's a whole temple uh, for him in New Delhi. And the statues of him were of him as a little boy, because even as a little boy, he came with all the full knowledge of enlightenment. And he was like, I came to teach this for you. Sorry, mom, you know, tied your baby up to a chair. It didn't work. The baby got away. Anyways, I thought that was fascinating. And I will definitely put the link in the show notes. And when you go visit the temple, it's enlightened world, according to this little boy. Yeah, my memory might be wrong. Have you been there? I haven't. I haven't been there, but I did go to a a wax museum in Thailand that was full of monks and it was really funny because it was like, here we have celebrities and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, actually, if you go to Wax Museum in Thailand, maybe you can find a celebrity one, but you can also find one with superstar monks in it, which is kind of funny. Um, yeah. I also wanted to mention Bodhisattva really quickly because people will use that, ta- that term a lot. Technically, a Bodhisattva is someone who basically could become enlightened, but delays it out of compassion for wanting to serve humans. So they could kind of fall into any of those prior to our hunt would be a Bodhisattva who's come back just to serve. All right. Well, in summary, we've discussed the 10 hindrances that are keeping us from our true state of enlightenment. And we talked about the four different planes of enlightenment. And next week, Christina will be leading the episode on... I will be leading the episode on the imperfections. And we're also going to be covering um, impermanence. imperfections. It's perfection. I keep saying that. That's so interesting. It's some weird thing going on. I'm going to be covering the episode on the perfections, which if you can think of the hindrances as like like crusty stuff on top of you that needs to be like broken off and chipped off and chiseled off. Like the perfections are the buckets you need to fill up. So it's like on the one hand, 
you're getting rid of the other stuff. And as you fill up, and on the other hand, you're filling up buckets of like, hey, I want to do this. And I want to, I need a, you know, wisdom, compassion, all that kind of stuff. So those perfections make it so that it's somewhat easier to chip off um, the hindrances as well. They kind of lend to each other. They lend um, help to each other, but that's what I'll be covering next week. So yes, Christina, next week you'll be discussing the perfections, otherwise known as the paramis. And we hope you tune in next week for the final episode. Awesome. Thanks guys. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of this spiritual fix. Stay tuned for the final episode in the series next week. And what we would like to do is we talked a lot about India in this particular episode. So we really want to encourage you to donate to the COVID relief that's happening in India at the moment. Um, We will be putting a link in our show notes and donating to the Indian Red Cross, which is indianredcross.org. Please, if you feel inspired um, by what you've heard here about India and all of the saints and holy people there, please consider donating to the Indian Red Cross. Have a great week. And remember, humility, gratitude, acceptance, done. Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.